well, welcome everybody to the, the last of our series on the future of the left, organised by the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. My name's Robin Archer and I'm the director of the program. Um, and it's my very great pleasure to introduce to you today Professor Sherry Berman. Um, I think she is an excellent person to end our series. She's someone with a deep knowledge of European politics and history and she's thought uh, long and hard about questions of comparison, questions of social theory, and especially, and I think this is particularly important to us today, about the history and politics of the European left. Um, some of you may know her work. Um, she's got two important books. The first was The Social Democratic Moment, which was a comparison of Germany and Sweden, and the second, which made really quite something of a splash, was called The Primacy of Politics, which was an attempt, or at least this is how I see it, an attempt to reinterpret the social democratic tradition in Europe. Um, more recently, she's had a series of articles, notably one in a, in a book called What's Left of the Left. One of the editors, I think, was George Ross, who was someone who was um, a colleague of, of Ralph Miliband's, and so there's a connection there too. But today, Professor Berman's going to talk to us about the past and future of social democracy, and the consequences for Europe. And she's going to talk until, roughly, until about half past, and then, of course, we're going to open up as usual um, for questions. So can I ask you to join me in welcoming Professor Sherry Berman? Well, thank you very much. I'm um, really honoured to be here. Um, and I'm particularly honoured to be here uh, talking in a lecture series memorializing one of the great intellectuals of the left. Um, and I think this is obviously a particularly good but sort of depressing time to be talking about the future of the left. Um, I can't say that when I think about that issue today, I think things look um, very promising for the left today. Um, the left today looks electorally somewhat better than it did um, a few years ago, but I think there's still a lot of reason to worry about the movement's future. I think that if we look at what's going on um, in the left today, or for the left today, in England and in other places, it seems that much of what people think today about the left, much of the resurgence in support for the left, is more a reaction to the policies that have been peddled by the right than support for some sort of distinctive and inspirational leftist alternative. Um, so this brings me to the question that I kind of been puzzling through, and perhaps um, many of you have been puzzling through, which is, um, why is this the case? Why is the left today relatively without the ability to inspire? What is it that is distinctive about the left today? The West, as we know, is going through its greatest economic crisis since the 1930s, and this crisis is caused largely by a neoliberal shift that has forgotten about the dangers of markets in a sort of mad embrace of the market's positive qualities. And yet, despite this, despite this crisis, there was no massive uprising of support for the left. You might have thought there should have been, but of course there wasn't. In fact, initially, initially, hold on, I'm supposed to have my little thing here. Initially, there was actually support electorally, not for the left, but for center-right parties. Um, now, part of the reason for this, I think, as I've already kind of alluded to, is that I don't think the left had anything very distinctive to offer citizens when this crisis came. And this lack of ideas that the left has shown most recently, 
I don't think is anything new at all. In fact, if you look back to the years before the crisis, really the best the left had to offer in most parts of Europe, and I say this is also true in the United States, is kind of a kinder, gentler version of the policies that had long been peddled by the right. It's been a long time, I think, since the left has really had anything distinctive to offer citizens in, in the West. Now, I think this state of affairs would have appalled Ralph Miliband. Um, and how many people on the left today could really provide good answers to the question that Miliband famously asked in a well-known article in the Socialist Register in 1965? Namely, what does the left want? A lot of us could probably say what the left doesn't want. It doesn't want austerity. It doesn't want neoliberalism. It doesn't want increased inequality. But negatives are never as good a foundation for politics as positives. What is the left's vision of a better world today? This is the most pressing question the left faces. And I think perhaps if Ralph Miliband was still around, this is the question, of course, that he would be puzzling through or struggling with. And so I'd like to try to address this question today. And I want to suggest that to address it, we actually have to go backwards in time. And I think we need to do this for two reasons. The first, I want to suggest, is because I think that the roots of the left's contemporary problems actually lie in dynamics dating back to the 1970s. And these dynamics themselves, I think, are a product of deeper trends or divisions within the left. And so in order to understand them, I think we actually need to know something about the movement's historical evolution. The second reason I think we need to go back before we are able to go forward is because I think that the principles of at least one part of the left may provide good guidelines for the left going forward. So I'm going to ask you to kind of bear with me a little bit while I go through a little very oversimplified and very generalized history. Um, and this history is going to draw mostly on the West European experience, but um, hopefully the relevance for England and Britain more generally will be clear. So the story of the democratic left really starts in the late 19th century. And this is a time when there were really critical divisions that were opening up within the socialist movement. And really, these divisions centered on the question of what the movement wanted, right? What did the left want, and what was the best way of going about getting it? Now, Marxism, of course, was the dominant ideology of the left at this time. And Marxism argued that socialism would come about as a result of sort of relatively law-like developments in the capitalist system. So we get the ultimate outcome because that's where capitalism was leading us, right? The system was bound to collapse. Capitalism was rotten. It was full of contradictions. It would have to fall apart. And when it did, that's when we get what we all wanted. But the problem, of course, was that by the late 19th century, a lot of people began to think, wait a second, this doesn't seem to be happening at all. There didn't seem to be any sign that capitalism was on the verge of collapse. Now this created a lot of problems. The question arose, famously, of what was to be done. If capitalism wasn't going to give us our better future, then what was to be done? Well, if the new order, the better world, wasn't going to come about on its own, then 
Some people argued one choice was to eliminate this order by force. We could get rid of it through the efforts of a powerful revolutionary movement, a vanguard party that would work to overthrow the existing order. Um, now, this, of course, was Lenin's answer, and the folks who embraced this answer of what is to be done became, obviously, the communists of the 20th century. But most people on the left in Western Europe didn't want to embrace this path. They didn't like the idea of violence and insurrection, and they preferred, they believed in a democratic or peaceful path to socialism. But this democratic socialist left was divided into different camps as well. One part of this camp believed that although Marx was wrong about capitalism collapsing in the very near future, he was basically right about it otherwise. Capitalism's internal contradictions and terrible dynamics meant that it was going to collapse eventually, and it was therefore impossible to, it was impossible to sustain over time. It was also undesirable to sustain it over time because capitalism was just so bad. It therefore shouldn't be the goal of the left to try to reform or improve capitalism because, again, it was the source of society's problems. This was one answer. Another part of the democratic left believed that capitalism wasn't going to collapse at all was not only not collapsing now, but it wasn't likely to collapse any time in the medium and probably even long-term future. Therefore, these people believed that it was both possible and desirable to try to reform and improve capitalism, to try to make use of its upsides while using the power of the democratic state to eliminate its downsides. They thought that rather than transcending capitalism, the goal should be to kind of harness the market's productive powers, while at the same time striving to make sure that its negative consequences were contained. The real story of the democratic left since this point, I think, has been the story of the struggle between these two different views, right? What I would call the struggle between folks in the democratic socialist camp, that would be more this view, and the views of those in the social democratic camp, which would be this latter view. Now this battle between these two different um, viewpoints or traditions reached its kind of high point in the interwar period, in the 1920s and the 1930s. And this makes sense if you know something obviously about this period. Right? This was a period when socialist parties, when parties of the left had become major, if not dominant actors in their party systems, and they confronted a challenge not entirely dissimilar, although much harder than the challenge that we face today, right? Which is a socioeconomic landscape defined, especially by the 1930s, by a collapse of communism, not a destruction of communism, but a communist system, a, a capitalist system rather, that had run into terrible problems. And this Great Depression that hit the West in the 1930s, right, had a variety of important consequences the most obvious of which was that it led to a resurgence in support for a radical, populist, nationalist right. And this nationalist right grew very powerful, drawing on the anger and frustration of people who were confused and frustrated and upset by the things that this collapse, this crisis of cap capitalism had caused. 
Now, in this situation in the 1930s with this crisis of capitalism on the one side and the rise of these kind of right-wing populist nationalist parties on the other, this debate within the left heated up again. And many folks within the left claim that kind of clinging to a traditional leftist program would doom the left to oblivion. And they argued that in the context of this Great Depression, of this great crisis of capitalism, that what the left needed to do was very clear. The left needed to use the state to reform and perhaps even transform capitalism. Now this view, this kind of social democratic view, was opposed very much. And it was opposed by an interesting mix of people. It was opposed by Orthodox Marxists. It was opposed by communists. And it was also opposed by many liberals, right? Because these folks didn't believe that capitalism either could or should be reformed, right? They didn't believe, although for different reasons, of course, that there was much value in interfering with the market. Social Democrats, however, believed that this was the task of the day, that this was what needed to be done in the context of the 1930s. But they recognized that doing this would require majority support, because they believed it needed to be done through a democratic state. And so these Social Democrats emphasized the need to reach out to groups beyond the traditional working class because it was only then that they would have the popular support to be able to implement some of these programs. So Social Democrats by the 1930s also favored broad, cross-class appeals. And they realized very clearly also the dangers for the left of not going this way, the dangers for the left of limiting their appeal too much, because they understood, again, the anger and frustration that existed within their societies. And they understood that if the left did not reach out to try to capture or respond to this anger and frustration, that there were parties on the left, on the right, that were more than willing to do so. So to reach out to these people was both important electorally, to give them the support they needed to come to power, but also important because if they did not reach out to these people, they understood, again, very clearly that there were parties on the right that were very willing and able to do so. So what came to distinguish these sort of social democrats during the interwar years were two sort of basic things. One was their support, again, for sort of cross-class appeals, right? Even if you look at this time, communitarian appeals. And these appeals tended to focus on things like the people, or the community, or the common good, or the little man, right? And again, this was very much seen to be in contrast to the kind of class struggle viewpoint that was embraced by Marxists, by lots of democratic socialists, but also it was very different from the um, liberals' emphasis on, um, on individualism. Now, um, there were a variety of different versions of these kinds of appeals, right, that joined this kind of cross-class communitarianism to this view of the democratic state as the mechanism through which capitalism could be reformed or transformed. One of the most popular, or one of the most influential rather, was um, originated by a man named either Henri or Enrique Demand, depending on whether you like his uh, French or his um, Belgian version. Um, very influential in Holland and Belgium and also in France. There were versions of this also in Germany, um, perhaps the most important of which was something called the 
WTB plan. Um, but this sort of social democratic approach, this joining of this kind of cross-class appeal with this emphasis on using the democratic state to reform or transform capitalism, the place where this really reached its apogee was in Scandinavia, and in particularly in Sweden. And here was the place where right, this kind of approach was embraced fully, entirely, by a socialist party. Right? And this explains why it was from this period afterwards that Sweden came to sort of represent or hold this kind of iconic status on the left as the kind of place where the left had received its fullest flowering. The roots lie in this um, period of the interwar years and again of the party's ability to embrace this very distinctive sort of social democratic kind of appeal. So what the Swedes did during this period right, is they developed this new view of a relationship between the state and capitalism. And this culminated in their famous um, championing of Keynesianism before Keynes, right, the literature and the Swedes themselves say they came up with all the same ideas that Keynes came up with, but they came up with them first, and as opposed to um, in England and in other parts of Europe, also where similar demand stimulus kinds of ideas were developed, they were actually implemented in Sweden. Right? But what made the Swedes so special, again, was not simply their embrace of you know, what we sort of might call proto-Keynesian policies, but that they joined this embrace of this particular style of economics right, with a very particular type of political appeal. Right? The party made clear right, to citizens in Sweden that it was absolutely committed to terms like or things like the common man or the common good. Right? The party's leader during this time, a fellow named Per Alban Hansen, popularized the theme of Sweden as the people's home, the Folkhemet. Now, for those of you who know German, maybe a lot of you do in this room, that word may sound a little funny to you, right? Because the Swedish word folk is very much similar to the German word Volk, with a V instead of an F. And the idea is very similar, right? The idea was similar, the resonance was also similar. And Hansen, the Swedish leader, very much stole, purposefully stole this idea from the Swedish right, this idea of Swedish as Sweden as folkhemet or people's home, a term, in fact, that was developed first on the Swedish right, that Hansen recognized the resonance of and then embraced, brought over to the left as a way to sort of pull the rug out from under the Swedish right. And so ironically or interestingly, what happened in Sweden right, was whereas in places like Germany and Italy, right, it was Nazi or fascist parties right, that claimed that they were in the vanguard of protecting the nation, that they were the parties with interesting ideas to how to get their countries out of the trauma of the interwar years. In Sweden, it was the Social Democrats right, who were able to claim this mantle, right, who were able to convince their electorate that they were the ones who had the best plans for dealing with capitalism's crisis and that they were the ones most committed to and most able to protect the Swedish nation from all of its um, enemies. So by the 1930s, you sort of had a very clear, I think, political profile for this social democratic tradition. So compared to orthodox Marxists and liberals, both of whom believed although for different reasons that markets were best left alone, right? either because it would be better to have them collapse 
right? That's the viewpoint for the Marxists and the democratic socialists. Or because markets would self-correct, leave them alone for that reason, that's the liberal viewpoint. Social democrats believe that you needed to use the power of the democratic state to tame capitalism's destructive and degenerative tendencies. They believed, in other words, that you needed to use the state to kind of save capitalism from the worst version of itself. They also differed on political appeals, as I said. In comparison to sort of the class struggle emphasis of Marxists and many democratic socialists and the individualist emphasis of liberals, um, social democrats emphasized things like the community and the collective good. And they favored appeals to the ordinary or the little people rather than just to workers alone. Now, during the interwar years, social democrats lost the battle to transform particular socialist or left parties, except, as I said, in Scandinavia and in particularly in Sweden. But the Second World War really transformed Europe in profound ways. And one of the ways in which it transformed Europe was that when the dust settled in 1945, Europeans in general, and much of the left in particular, had a newfound appreciation for many of the insights that social democrats had been peddling for many years. Now it's important, I think, maybe especially today, to remember that um, although we sort of take democracy in Europe for granted today, in fact, it's really only a product of the post-war period, right? From 1789 up through um, the first half of the 20th century in Europe, um, with the partial exception of England and some parts of Northern Europe, Europe was a continent plagued by pretty much constant political instability, class conflicts, communal conflicts, and social violence. Okay? These, of course, these terrible trends culminated during the interwar years with the collapse of innumerable democratic regimes, right? And of course, the rise of the most brutal dictatorships the world had ever known. Now, given this pretty sorry history with democracy, it's not surprising that up through the middle of the 20th century, thinkers on both the left and the right believed that democracy and capitalism were simply incompatible. This was the sort of standard viewpoint up through the middle of the 20th century. Marx, for example, on the left, doubted that the bourgeoisie would ever allow democracy to actually come into being. And he felt that if it did somehow, that a one-person, one-vote system would surely mean the end of capitalism. So democracy and capitalism were incompatible for those reasons. Liberals, on the other hand, and this includes everyone from Tocqueville up through Hayek, lived, again, flip side, in constant fear of this, of constant fear of what the egalitarian impulses of a propertyless citizenry would mean for capitalism. They were never convinced that democracy could be allowed because they felt that if it was, surely the mass of citizens would vote in all kinds of policies that would bring to an end the freedoms that they associated with capitalism. So the scarcity of successful democracy in Europe before 1945 and the tragedy of the interwar years in particular, right, led actors across the political spectrum to recognize that if democracy were ever going to come to Western Europe after 1945, lots and lots of things were going to have to change. And in particular, a change in political forms and institutions was not going to be enough to finally bring stable democracy to Europe after 1945. 
there was going to have to be very important social and economic changes as well if democracy was finally going to work after the Second World War. These changes were necessary, people believed, to prevent a recurrence of the kinds of conditions that had given rise to extremism and conflict and it helped scuttle democratic experiments in the past, right? So there was really, again, it's sort of hard to recapture now, a widespread acceptance after 1945 of these things, right? And in particular, that at the root of a lot of the problems that Europe had faced politically before 1945 lie capitalism and its consequences, right? So there's a couple of nice quotes here from famous intellectuals who probably everybody at the LSE are familiar with. Um, Right? And it's also important to stress that this recognition right, of the need to change capitalism in order to protect democracy was not something limited to the left. Right? This is an important change that happens after 1945. This is no longer something that people on the left debate, but that is recognized now by people across the political spectrum. So there's two quotes here from you know, what might be considered center-right kinds of political movements. Also very clearly acknowledging that st political stability in Europe after 1945 required confronting head-on the dangerous consequences of capitalist systems. Right? That citizens would need to be protected from the most destructive and degenerative effects of the capitalist system if political stability were ever to be achieved in Europe. Now, there were lots of ways in which this particular um, insight or recognition manifested itself after 1945. The one that's most oft discussed was sort of expansion of the welfare state. But it's important to think about why, why this change was so important from the perspective, again, of consolidating <coughs> democracy in Western Europe after 1945. Even the Americans, by the way, um, recognize the need to do this, right? Recognize the need to put in place a system that would protect um, West European citizens from um, capitalism's vicissitudes. So um, here's a quote from someone, again, who probably you all are familiar with, from um, C.A.R. Crossland, right? And he notes after 1945 that it was increasingly regarded as a proper function and indeed the obligation of government to ward off distress and strain not only among the poor, but among, but almost all classes of society. Now, why is this so important? Again, why is it relevant to this particular sort of strain of thought? Well, okay, so welfare states are important for this reason, right? That they helped protect individuals from economic strain and distress. But also what was important about welfare states, right, was that they were supposed to give renewed importance, renewed significance to membership in a national community, right? They both required, welfare states did, and fostered a sense of solidarity among citizens, right? You can only sustain a welfare state if individuals believe that ensuring a level of well-being for all citizens is a worthy goal. So this was one way in which the system changed, right? This sense that we had to be in this together and that states had to protect their citizens from the kinds of strains and dislocations that had led them to engage in such horrible behavior during the interwar years, to support extremist movements and things of that nature. Now, European political economies were reshaped in many ways after 1945, not just welfare states were important, right? There were lots of different kinds of things that were embraced. Each nation had its own particular mix of policies, included things 
from Keynesianism to nationalization to social partnerships to nationalization. But what was important about all these changes, again, is that they were designed to ensure that capitalism would never again be allowed to cause the kind of economic meltdowns and social dislocations that had helped scuttle democratic experiments in Europe's past and in the interwar years in particular. So this post-war order, right, that we're sort of living at the end of in some ways was very unique, um, historically very unique, right? Again, just to return to some of the, um, to Crossland in particular, right? People writing about the changes that had occurred during this post-war period. Crossland, for instance, pointed out that what we had now after 1945 in Europe was a capitalism that was different in every kind, in kind from classical capitalism. It was different in almost every respect. Andrew Schoenfield, again, another very influential analyst of post-war capitalism, said that what came into being after 1945 was an ec the economic order in which folks lived at this time. Um, the social structure that goes with it are so different from what preceded them that it has become misleading to use the word capitalism to describe them. Now this, of course, was a little overblown. Obviously what you had after 1945 in Europe was capitalism, but it was a very different capitalism that existed during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. This was a capitalism that was tempered and limited by political power, and it was often made subservient to the needs of society rather than the other way around. Now this was a far cry from what orthodox Marxists, communists, and many democratic socialists wanted, which was again, an elimination of capitalism. That was their preferred option. But it was also very different from what liberals wanted, which was obviously as free a capitalism as possible. And of course, as we know, this post-war order worked very, very well for 30 years. Europe experienced in the 30 years after the Second World War its fastest period of economic growth ever. Right? And it's not just growth rates, right? So we shouldn't just think it was okay, Europe reconstructed after the Second World War, and so growth rates were very high. Many other things changed after 1945 in a positive or progressive way. Life expectancies went up, infant mortality went down, increasing access to education, the extent of education, lower levels of inequality, right? All of these things happened in the 30 years after 1945 under this particular system. And the political impact of this new type of political economy was profound, right? The fact that you had this growth, that you had this growth that was widespread, made compromise within European societies much easier. This was something sorely lacking before 1945. And it's absolutely essential for well-functioning democracies. If groups cannot reach compromises, democracy becomes very, very difficult. Labor became less radical after 1945. Employers became more willing to bargain with labor, to accept unions and social protections. And a notable manifestation of all of this, of course, was that extremism, which had plagued Europe throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries, essentially disappears after 1945, right? Now, the right-wing version of extremism was to a large degree discredited by the Second World War. But when you look back, it's actually amazing to see what happens to right-wing parties, which had been such an important part of European political life in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. These right-wing populist parties and even traditional conservative parties disappear in most parts of Europe after 1945. 
communists, on the other hand, on the extreme left, right, they remain in some parts of Europe powerful political actors after 1945. France and Italy are the most obvious examples, but these are not the communists of the interwar years. During the course of that post-war period, the communists of that era become very different from the communists of the previous era. They make clear their commitment to democracy, they distance themselves from insurrection and violence, and they even distance themselves eventually from the Soviet Union. And so in contrast to the period before the Second World War, when party systems in Europe were really pulled across, pulled apart by extremes, right? Not so much in England, of course, but definitely in most of the rest of Western Europe, right? The opposite occurs after 1945, right? What you get after 1945, almost across Western Europe, are party systems that are now dominated by parties of the center-left and center-right, what Otto Kirchheimer famously called catch-all parties, right? Both of which were committed to democracy and more or less committed to a particular type of political economy. Entirely different political systems than existed before the, um, before the Second World War. So this post-war social democratic order and the transformations it brought to Western Europe's political parties, labor relations, state market relations, provided the foundation upon which democratic consolidation could finally occur in Europe after 1945. Now we don't tend to see economic policy or social policy as factors in democratic consolidation, but we absolutely should. And the Western European cases are classic examples of how these kinds of things work together. And it's important again to remember really what an achievement this was, right? This was the first time in West European history after 1945 that the Western part of Europe was able to combine the sort of glorious trifecta, right? Economic growth, social stability, and democracy. It's the first time that it happened in West European history, right? Um, but despite these achievements, of course, as we know, this social democratic consensus of the post-war order eventually frayed, right? On the left, the success of the order itself led many to forget that the reforms that had been put in place, although important, were simply means to an end, right? The end being the taming of capitalism, the reconciling of capitalism with democracy and social stability. Many on the left became content simply with managing the existing order, and they stopped thinking deeply about its rationale or how capitalism was changing. Others on the left, those folks, again, who we might consider to be um, democratic socialists, never really accepted the loss of this post-capitalist future. And they viewed the kind of post-war social democratic order as sort of second best. And the role of this group diminished over time, but it did play an outsized role among the movement's intellectuals, and I would probably, for example, put Ralph Miliband in this category. These folks, democratic socialists, tended to believe that true justice and true democracy could only come with capitalism's elimination. And so they really implicitly sometimes and sometimes explicitly denigrated efforts to reform capitalism. And they certainly didn't devote the bulk of their intellectual energy to thinking about how the reforms that had been put in place after 1945 should be refashioned in tune with the changing nature of capitalism during those decades. There was another group, also disgusted by the loss of a post-capitalist future, bored by the materialism, what they saw as the materialism of the social democratic order, 
um, who neglected capitalism entirely. For them, capitalism and economics was no longer interesting. These people turned their attention on the left to things like postmodernism, multiculturalism, feminism, postcolonialism, and a variety of other intellectual endeavors that were cultural rather than economic in nature. Some scholars have referred to this as a shift to the politics of recognition from the politics of redistribution. Now these trends, however, these cultural trends on the left, had little relevance or resonance with ordinary people. And they served in any case to fragment citizens rather than reunite them. And thus they made the formation or the bringing together or the holding together of a progressive coalition increasingly difficult over the post-war period. So the main point of all this is to stress, I think, that during the last decades of the 20th century, the left was not actually spending a lot of time thinking about the changing nature of capitalism and what the left's role in response to that changing capitalism should be. And the consequences of this became very clear by the 1970s because, of course, as we know, there had been a growing neoliberal movement on the right that had been doing just this, that had been organizing and thinking about capitalism or rather thinking about the post-war order and what it didn't like about it. And when a crisis hit in the 1970s, this right had a response. It had an answer to what was going on. It had a diagnosis of what the problems were. And it was therefore this right that managed to gain the ideological high ground on economic issues during the last decades of the 20th century. And from this high ground was able to push forward a global movement disembedding capitalism from many of the restrictions that had been placed upon it during the post-war era. And this brings us back to the crisis that hit the West a few years ago. Now, great crises should really be an opportunity for rethinking, right? This is a crisis that is a failure of these ideas, that is a failure of the neoliberal system. And this should be a time when this system is being rethought. And again, for this reason, many people believed initially that there would be this great swing to the left, right? and that this swing to the left would foreshadow a new re-embedding of the capitalist system. But for this to have happened, the left would have had to have been ready, right? It would have had to have ready ideas about what this new system should be and how we should get there. But of course, no such thing existed. And this brings us back to the um, theme of this lecture series, which is the future of the left. So Europe and many parts of the world today face these critical challenges. Right? The most obvious of which, or the central of which, again, is saving capitalism from itself. That is to say, repairing and reinvigorating the capitalist system so that it can produce economic growth, but also be compatible with democracy and social stability. Now, these are not new challenges at all. These are, in fact, the same challenges that we have faced, the West has faced, that the world has faced, since, honestly, the onset of capitalism. And certainly, these are challenges that the left has been grappling with since the late 19th century. The social democratic part of the left, I've argued, is distinguished by a few distinctive responses to this challenge. Again, the challenge of reconciling capitalism with democracy and social stability. The first of these is that despite its many failures and downsides, capitalism is here to stay. It's therefore a complete waste of time to bemoan its existence or to place base plans for the future on the idea that it will be transcended. 
Social Democrats believe that it's both possible and desirable to reform and even improve capitalism. It's the left's job in this view, if I may use a few bad metaphors or aphorisms, um, again, to save capitalism from itself and from those who believes it's, believe its own internal workings are either so delicate or sacrosanct as to preclude intervention. If you touch capitalism, if you interfere in markets, it's going to somehow or another explode, right? Um, but it's also the job of the social democratic left to save the left from those who, so to speak, want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? To throw out the capitalist system because it obviously does have significant problems and downsides. Now, this may seem relatively straightforward, but it has not, in fact, been the sort of thoughts or principles that have guided the left over the last years, right? There's been, of course, on the left, a loud and active anti-globalization left that sees global capitalism as a curse to both the developed and the developing world, right? And there are many on the left who peddle fear of the future, fear of change, fear of the other, where globalization is seen as a threat, right, and the rise of developing world giants like India and China are seen as something that is harmful for us in the West rather than something that may be beneficial to us or good in and of itself. Also, much of the mainstream left, I think, remains committed to policies that made sense during the post-war era, perhaps, but no longer make sense today, right? These are not policies that are effective in the current capitalist climate. And if we look at the European countries that have fared best over the past years, it's clear that the way they have done this is by helping their citizens manage or react to change rather than fight change. So many analysts have remarked, for example, on the impressive success countries like Denmark and Sweden have had in the past years, right? And these cases make perfectly clear that social welfare and economic dynamism are not in, contradictions, in contradiction at all, but in fact can be quite complementary. Welfare policies, if designed correctly, can lower the costs of change, and they can help people adapt to economic change. And interestingly enough, or not perhaps that interesting, because it makes perfect sense, right? if you look at surveys of citizens' um, reactions to globalization, it's precisely in countries like Sweden and Denmark where views of globalization are highest, where people are most optimistic about the future. Right? It's in fact in places like the United States and certain parts of Europe where views of globalization are most negative, where fears of the future are greatest. Now, globalization is not something that can be managed only at the domestic level. It obviously also has to be managed at the European and international level as well. Um, one other interesting thing that this crisis has made clear is that despite the fears of many, perhaps disproportionately large numbers of, which, of whom live in England, um, in fact, the European Union has not pushed Europe in a dramatically social democratic direction at all. Right? In fact, as we've seen, the EU has moved Europe in precisely the opposite direction. During the crisis, the EU has acted as a force for neoliberalism and austerity. Um, now, this is partially, of course, because of the design of key institutions, like the central bank, but also because, as we can see, one of its many fatal flaws was that it was built without the requisite social solidarity that makes social democracy possible. Northern Europeans are willing to pay 50% of their taxes to help their citizens, to fund their citizens' welfare states. The Germans were willing to dole out billions and billions of dollars to help rebuild Eastern Europe. 
but none of these people are willing to spend the same amount of money doling out Southern Europeans, right, who they view as profligate, lazy, and dishonest, right? Now, this is a rhetoric that we in the United States find very, very familiar, right? And it's almost impossible to recognize, rec uh, to reconcile rhetoric like that, views like that with progressive politics, right? If you believe people who are ostensibly part of your community are not worthy, that their problems are their own fault, and that helping them is not your business, then it is very, very difficult to engage in progressive policies. So, since I have to sum up. Um, so, challenges for the left today that'll define its future. The first, again, as I've said several times, is saving capitalism from itself. The second is managing diversity. Recreating, in other words, a strong sense of social solidarity in the face of both increasing domestic diversity and Europeanization. Now, until fairly recently, the left has responded to this challenge of diversity almost as badly as it's responded to the challenges of capitalism or capitalist change. Essentially, up until fairly recently, the challenge of diversity has been responded to either by ignoring it or on parts of the intellectual left via some form of, again, what you might loosely call multiculturalism, although that term has a variety of meanings and connotations. Neither of these responses has stemmed social conflict or stopped an electoral flight from the left, especially on the part of the working class, which of course is the traditional constituency of the left. Now here too, I think, the contemporary left has something to gain from a re-examination of the social democratic tradition. Because as I've said, social democracy has very strong communitarian roots. Communitarianism in the social democratic tradition is both a means and an end. A strong interventionist state and general generous welfare policies depend on the support of a citizenry with a strong sense of fellow feeling or solidarity. Right? You cannot have support for those things without the sense that we're in it together, that we are joined by important ties. But some sort of communitarianism social democrats recognize, just like they recognized in the late 19th century, just like they recognized in the 1930s, is also necessary to counteract the sort of general sense of unease, confusion, and frustration that accompanies rapid economic and social change. This is what people need in times when they feel that the world is changing fast and confusing. They need a sense of identity. They need a sense of feeling part of a community. And in an increasingly diverse Europe, right, we've lost the ability right, to base calls for social solidarity on shared ethnic or religious backgrounds, which implicitly was what they were based on previously. Right? This is no longer a viable or an attractive strategy for the left in any case. So there needs to be some kind of new communitarian appeal. Right? It will have to be based on something more inclusive, shared values, responsibilities. Social Democrats have to make clear, in other words, that since 21st century citizenship can no longer be based on a fellowship of blood, it has to be based upon the acceptance of certain rules and certain norms by all members of society. Right? Even as the left pushes for better integration of immigrants into the societies around them, they must maintain an emphasis on something that joins them all together, on some common norms or values that everybody accepts and shares. 
Now, this communitarian leg of social democracy is probably as difficult for the contemporary left to come to terms with as the economic one. It is probably as great and as pressing a challenge as the challenge of contemporary capitalism. And indeed, many on the left seem not to like it. Many of the, on the left seem to think that it smacks of nationalism or exclusivism. But the fact of the matter is that if you want an order based on social solidarity, and the priority of social goods over individual interests, a strong sense of fellow feeling is required. It's required to get that in place, and it's required to make it politically sustainable. And members of the left who can't accept or deal with this reality will just end up ceding ground politically to the radical right and other populist movements who are more than happy, again, as they have been in the past, to step in to supply answers to these kinds of communitarian cravings that publics will always, will always display. Now this is very risky territory, right, to tread on because the dark side of communitarianism is very dark indeed. Um, and you don't want a left that is sort of peddling a fascism light, right, or one that accepts nativism or prejudice, right? But if you ignore the desire for some sort of community in a world where long-standing political, social, and cultural traditions are constantly being questioned, well, that's just a, really a recipe for disaster. All right, so to conclude, I think that the traditional principles of what I've called social democracy, right, a belief in the reconcilability of capitalism, democracy, and social stability, and communitarianism can and should form the basis of attractive and effective policies to deal with contemporary and future challenges, right? But beyond coming up with whatever particular policies are consistent with this, what's also obviously critically important for the left today is to regain a sense of optimism and vision. And this, I think, is where we come back to Ralph Miliband, whose lecture series this is. I think Miliband would probably strongly disagree with many of the suggestions that I've made or the tradition that I have sort of tried to push forward. But I don't think he would disagree at all with the need for vision, right? That the left needs to have some sense of where it wants the world to be heading, right? And I think, again, based on what um, all, many of his readings, right, that he would also understand that if the left doesn't have this kind of a vision, that the left is going to be rendered directionless and uninspiring. And this, of course, is where I think much of the left is today, right? It still wins elections. But it doesn't any longer, I think, have the ability to inspire much hope for the future. And given the movement's past and the efforts of intellectuals and activists like Miliband, this is simply an astonishing state of affairs for the left to be in. Right? The left has traditionally been driven by the conviction that a better world was possible and that it was the left's job historically to bring this world around. Right? Social democracy, in particular, was built on the idea of what I might call the primacy of politics. And by this, I simply mean the belief that people acting collectively, using the democratic state, can and should help determine the nature and evolution of capitalism in society. This is what the left is supposed to be doing. But over the last decades, I think the left has lost this faith in transformation. Right? And this has been profoundly damaging, not just for leftist politics, I think, but for a wider sense of public engagement with the political process. The challenges and problems of the contemporary era, of the 21st century, are clearly very difficult and quite varied. 
but they're not more daunting than the challenges that the left has faced in the past. And so perhaps by re-examining some of the principles and achievements of the left in the past, we can provide a foundation upon which new and more successful policies can be constructed, and equally as important, a sense of conviction right, that the left can use to inspire European publics and make people believe that a better future is both possible and necessary. So thank you very much. Well, we're going to go into the mode of questions now. Do you want to stay where you are or wh wh where are you happy? Here or here? Um, I think I'd prefer to sit down. <laughs> so, um, let's, 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 uh, we've got half an hour for questions and it would be nice to um, hear as many people as possible. So let's, um, would someone like to begin? Yes, sir. What, uh, there's a microphone coming. Thank you. In UK terms, you're, um, the prescription that, you're, that begins to emerge from what you're saying has a very blue labour tinge to it, uh, a return to old labour values but to try and uh, do it in a less statist way. Could you just comment on whether you think that's a viable future for the left in, the centre-left in this country? Well, it's, it's a viable future, I think, along the particular lines that I've um, laid out. So it's definitely less status, I think, than parts of the labor tradition were. I think it's more radical than a sort of traditional Blairite version in the sense that it's not just interested in getting policies to address the consequences of capitalism or markets, but in trying to get, um, trying to, get to the problems before they um, rise. Right? So it's different, I think, from the sort of traditional status version, which wants a sort of a version of the left that is, I think, more bureaucratic and more heavy-handed that is both acceptable and effective today, but it's also somewhat more interventionist or radical, depending on which term you prefer, than the policies that were coming out of the Blair movement or sort of third way thinking some years ago because it's not just interested in using the state to deal with the consequences of markets but it's interested in thinking about the fundamental ways in which these problems arise and trying to intervene to prevent them from happening. So I mean there's some overlap with different traditions within the labor movement but I don't see this social democratic tradition as having been the dominant one in the labor movement for the last you know generation, let's say, or so. Although there are clearly people within the labor movement today who are thinking along these lines, interestingly enough, perhaps as a reaction to what are seen as the perceived failures of both of those other obvious alternatives. Yes, uh, this, this gentleman in the orange sweater. Thank you. Given the, t the title of the past and, the, and future of social, social democracy in Europe, and given what you, the very interesting point you made that, uh, that the success of social democracy depends on a commitment and a, a uh, on the part of a community and community feeling, how can this, the future be successful given the, 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 in the Eurozone a, a common 
economy. When you have, with reference to the problems in Greece, you have a situation where you've had a socialist government there for many of the, the past in, in recent history, but yet it's not fostered a commitment on the part of the more affluent there to contribute, participate in contributing the, the, the payment of taxes to foster that ideal. So you've had a country with a socialist government without that community commitment. So how are you going to get that across a common zone? How can there be any future for that sort of social democratic commitment? Mm -hmm. uh, that's an excellent question. I think this is a major, major challenge for the left in Europe. It's always been a major challenge for the left in the United States. I mean, one of the key reasons why the left, of course, is so weak in the U.S. is that it's very difficult to get citizens to see themselves as part of some common community and common effort. I mean, this is one of the reasons why there's no socialism or never was any socialism in the United States, of course. And again, I think that this is what we've seen with the current crisis, right? There's clearly, as far as the European Union is concerned, we can see very clearly the crisis in um, you know, the way, the lack of political institutions to correspond to the level of in economic integration. We can see all these things now. People saw them before, but their flaws are perfectly clear. But what's interesting is we can see that underpinning that, right, the failure of political integration is not simply the fact that there are no political institutions in place to correspond to the economic challenges, but that it's impossible to get that political integration without the sense of community at the European level, right? Again, it's not that people won't pay taxes. It's not that people aren't willing to engage in bailouts. It's that they're only willing to do those things for people who they feel they share some common destiny or ties with. And so what I think this crisis has made clear in the European Union is that this belief, again, not just that political development would kind of inexorably follow the economic integration, but that somehow or another this sense of fellow feeling or Europeanness would also kind of come along. And we realize that, in fact, it hasn't, and that that's a large part of the reason why the problems can't be solved today, right? That there's so much pushback on the part of European publics, and that, again, interestingly enough, the things that the right feeds off today is both diversity at the domestic level, right, the fear of new immigrants, the fear of people who look different than them in their own countries, but also the sense that the European Union has also robbed the nation state of its power and coherence, right? And this is, again, this is a challenge for Europe and it's a challenge for the left because the left has historically depended on a sense of fellow feeling in the way the right does not. The right doesn't need it. In fact, it's sort of, it's perfectly happy without it. So this is, again, you know, we see a lot of talk or we've heard a lot of talk about the left's the weaknesses or the failures or the lacunae of the left's economic policies. But in fact, the left's failure to come up with good analysis of, and then on the basis of that, good reactions to these questions of diversity at both the domestic and the European level have proven, I think, to be deadly. I mean, this is not a process or a project that's going to be solved in the next year or two. Right? It should have been thought about a generation ago. But it wasn't. And so the question is, is there going to be an attempt today to figure out ways to overcome these challenges? Because without it, you're never going to get a European Union that pushes in a social democratic direction, which, again, ironically, was the fear on, of many on the right and the assumption of many on the left before the crisis hit, that the European Union would act as a force for social democracy. It has proven not to be the case at all. Uh, Vernon Bogdanor. Wait, wait for the thing so we can get a proper recording of your question. 
Well, you, you imply in your book and in your talk that social democracy is most successful in small, cohesive national states like Sweden and Norway. Um, and uh, you also imply, in a sense, that the further we get integrated into Europe, the further we are away from social democracy until such utopian time as the British feel some sort of fellow feeling with Latvians and Greeks and Poles, and that's a long time. And you also uh, imply that... Uh, the further we get into multiculturalism, the further we are away from social democracy, which is what the Swedes and Danes and Norwegians discovering. And the further point, it seems to me, the more we get into devolution and federalism, as in Britain and Germany and Spain, the further we get away, because you have different stands of welfare in different parts of the country. Now, all these policies, European integration, multiculturalism, uh, decentralization, devolution, are things which small L liberals want. And it seems to me you haven't shown that there is any sort of future for social democracy in the way you define it. I think you define it correctly as the value of fellowship. It seems to me not attainable in the sort of world in which we live. Well, okay, so I, I consider that a sort of follow-up on the previous question. And I mean, I think this is, I think this is, I think this is a real challenge, right? I can't pretend, based on at least my reading of history, others presumably have different ones, that this is not a real challenge for the left. And it's a particular challenge today, and I think it's every bit as much of a challenge as the sort of ob more obvious one, perhaps, the one that gets more attention about, you know, sort of capitalism. I don't think it's impossible. I don't think that we have to have a sense of fellow feeling that can only be based on the fact that we all sort of look the same or we all go to the same churches or, you know, the same temples or whatever. I don't think that has to be the case. I think you can connect citizens on the basis of other things, but that requires effort. I mean, there was a time when, um, you know, Europeans killed themselves, as we all know. I've spent the last couple of days touring British museums, trying to explain my, to my son why Catholics and Protestants like to kill each other in the past, right? And in parts of the world and in parts of the UK, still very recently today, right? There are ways that this can be done, but it's not easy and it requires effort, right? It's a creation. It's not a natural thing, right? Communities imagine now it's easier to imagine communities among people who already have ties there's no doubt about that but it's not impossible to imagine communities with ties that are more created and fostered and again I think this is a task for the left it's not a task for the right it's not interested in it and it thrives on the absence of them but this is again something I think or I was trying to point out in this very brief run-through of you know 50 years plus of history, that this is not a challenge that the left has either recognized or addressed very carefully over the last generations. And so it's not a surprise that we find ourselves in a place today where we're just kind of at a loss, where the, the groups that are identifying and reacting to these kinds of problems are on the right. But the left needs to spend as much time thinking about how to create this sense of cohesion as it does about thinking about how to deal with the changed nature of capitalism. I don't think it's an easy task. I don't think it's one that's likely to be solved in the next five years, but I do not think it's an insurmountable challenge. But challenges don't get solved unless somebody tries to do that. Right. Um, we've got a lot of gentlemen, so I'll just take another gentleman, but if there's someone who's not a gentleman, please put their <laughs> hand up. Um, this, this gentleman with the grey coat. You, um, you seem to sort of accept the changes brought by economic globalization. Then at the same time say that it's the left's role to determine, or sorry, social democracy's 
role to determine um, the nature and shape of capitalism. Isn't it the extent of economic globalization which we should really um, try and shape? Especially if you take the view that I do, and I, think, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Danny Roderick, that um, economic globalization, to the extent we've seen pushed by neoliberalism, is not really compatible with democracy. Yes, those are, I mean, that's an excellent point. So first of all, we shouldn't see the rise of globalized capitalism as something kind of inexorable. It has a political component. I'm a big fan of Karl Polanyi and sort of as is Danny Roderick. So first of all, we should recognize that the capitalist system we have today is not sort of an inexorable development. It was shaped by political choices and it was shaped by um, particular ideologies. I think that certain types of capitalism are incompatible with democracy and social stability. And what I've been trying to say is that this was a particular insight that I think this strand of the left, the social democratic strand, had, which was that capitalism left on its own, right, left to develop in dangerous ways, was incompatible with democracy and social stability. And it was the task of the left to create a capitalism that could be rendered compatible with democracy and social stability, but that left on its own, it was in fact not. It was too destabilizing. It was too destructive. Right? It created too many social consequences that in turn, again, led to things like extremism and communal conflicts and class conflicts. So I, I agree with you. I think that that's the problem, right, is that we have a capitalism today that is in many ways very dangerous for both democracy and social stability. You see that in Europe. I see it in the United States. The question is, right, does the left still believe that it has this capacity? Right, that we have this capacity as citizens to create a capitalism that is still economically viable, productive, it, you know, improves growth, right, and also does not destroy these other things that we value, namely democracy and social stability. There clearly are tensions today. It's extremely interesting as a political scientist at the LSE, right, the more confusing the times, the more interesting they are. Right? So you see people like Francis Fukuyama, Right? or Wolfgang Streck writing articles talking about they believe that capitalism today, contemporary capitalism, is in fact moving in directions, if it's not already there, that it are incompatible with democracy. We haven't seen things like that coming from sort of mainstream scholars of the left or center for a generation. I mean, and so yes, I think we have, the capitalism we have today does need significant reforms if it's going to re be rendered once again compatible with the kind of democracy and social stability that I think we, we in the West have come to accept and we, we want, and other people in other parts of the world want as well. Okay, uh, this woman with the orange pen. Thanks. You started to, uh, you made a comment about uh, the difficulty of selling a socialist ideal in the States compared to Europe. And I just wonder, when you talk about this task of the left, do you see it as being a different task in different nation states? Or do you see it as being a, 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 an issue of political pragmatism? Um, I think the broad outlines of the task are similar. I think the nature the particular nature and level of the challenge varies by country. So um, I think this has always been harder in the United States than it's been in Europe. 
this is a sort of trivial thing to say. The reasons are pretty, I think, straightforward. We have a much more diverse country. We have a much more individualist country. We have a country for a variety of reasons where um, a weaker state in many ways has been the preferred outcome for a variety of different um, groups. Um, I think it's easier in smaller countries where populations are still relatively homogenous, although I would not I would not overemphasize or I would not overgeneralize about how homogenous these countries, even the small European countries now. I mean, Sweden probably has more immigrants. I should know this, I'm not sure. If it doesn't have more immigrants than England, it has more immigrants than most other countries. I think more than one out of every 10 Swedes has at least a parent, one parent who was, brought, who was born in another country, and not Finland or Norway, which doesn't really count quite as much. So I think the broad challenge, the broad challenge is the same across countries, not only in the developed world, but also in the developing world. Right? And I think, actually, if you speak to folks, I know you had a fellow who came earlier in this lecture series who was talking about challenges for the left in the developing world. If you talk to people in the developing world, in many ways, they're more cognizant of these tensions than we are. Because we had solved them for a relatively long period of time, we're not fully, I think, as aware of how much economic growth or capitalism can be destabilizing for societies and how many problems that creates for social and political stability. If you talk to people in places like Thailand or China, they're very cognizant of this because they're living through this in a way that we are in the West, even with this crisis, are not. So I think the broad challenge is the same, right? How do we reconcile these three things, right? This is the challenge of modern modernity, if I'm still allowed to use that term, right? Which is we have to figure out ways to make capitalism compatible with other things, social and political stability. Right? So that challenge, I think, is the same everywhere. The particular way in which that challenge manifests itself and the particular difficulty of the challenge, that, I think, varies from country to country. OK, uh, the gentleman at the back. Thank you. Uh, brilliant rendering of Professor uh, Berman. Um, <clears throat> I'd like you to, like to, to draw you to uh, this, uh, the future of, uh, of social democracy in Europe. If Europe were to go through a very severe uh, economic uh, downturn, um, which we all fear if the euro were to, uh, to what you call collapse, there could be serious, what you call, uh, economic consequences for Europe. Uh, yes, what will happen to the social democracy in Europe in that case? Thank you. Well, I mean, I think the crisis in Europe is pretty crisis indeed right now. I mean, it could certainly get worse. Um, I think what we're seeing now on a sort of um, electoral and relatively superficial level, right, is a strong reaction to the sort of austerity policies that have been peddled by much of the center right. And so you're likely to see a sort of perhaps continued swing towards the left. But again, the question is, what is the left going to offer publics in Europe, right? If they offer them sort of kinder, gentler versions, again, as they have in the past, of the policies peddled by the right, 
Will that be acceptable to some people? Yes. But is there a price to be paid for not having something distinctive to offer other than, again, kinder, gentler versions of what your opponent has to offer? And is there something to be said, again, in the long term, for people not having a sense that a better world is possible? I mean, this is kind of sounds a little like an airy-fairy academic thing. But if you look around and you talk to young people in particular, I mean, the sense that there's no longer a political project that holds out the hope of creating a better world has really, I think, had profoundly destabilizing consequences for the way people engage in politics. For one thing, they engage less, right? And for the way people think about their societies and what, their, what sort of the future has to hold for them. Again, I think that this is something the left has historically done, right? It's the left that has always said a better world is possible and it's our job to create it. That's not something that you hear from the right. And the fact that that's really no longer something that the left has, I think, is really, you know, sort of profoundly destabilizing for Europe and for other parts of the world as well. And I think it says something about the left's electoral, you know, um, uh, chances in particular, right? It's always going to be sort of in this kind of secondary position of being the sort of the place that you go to when the more cohesive and seemingly economically competent right fails, right? Then you go to the left. But you wouldn't go to the left otherwise because it has nothing particular to offer other than an alternative to something that you find at this particular point in time no longer attractive. Okay, this man uh, with the green jacket. Question, uh, uh, your last answer. I was actually going to say before you gave that answer that, um, that basically to challenge you that the situation in Europe is a lot more fluid than you suggest. Uh, and clearly in the last month there has been a kind of uh, tipping point with the election of President Hollande. On Sunday we'll see the uh, election uh, of a clear majority for the left in France. We may see in Greece Syriza, uh, which is a hodgepodge of communists, Marxists, Trotskyists win. And if it doesn't win, it still set the agenda. Even if Nea Demokratia wins, which is a party of the right, Syriza has actually basically forced it into a position that it will renegotiate the bailout. And the whole terms of the debate in Europe has changed from austerity to the emphasis on growth. And you see people like Monty, even David Cameron, now coming in behind Hollande because of the failure of austerity. Ireland was held up as the great success. It no longer is. So now they've had fallen back in Latvia. Well, I mean, there isn't much less uh, left after Latvia. I mean, Merkel is increasingly isolated. So what I'm saying is there is a very highly fluid situation here, and that basically we're seeing probably uh, you know, the Paul Krugmans of this world, the Keynes of this world, winning the debate in the next few months. Um, I would say I would agree with half of what you said, perhaps, which is that I, there's clearly been a shift. There's a frustration with austerity because of both its negative consequences and that it's not working, right? You could have one, but you can't have them both. And so I think, as I sort of started off, that I think much of the support for the left is a reaction to the right. Now, whether or not Hollande and the French left and other lefts are able to come into office and offer anything more then, um, okay, so you can retire now two years earlier than you could under Sarkozy. I mean, this is not, I mean, this, is this better? Maybe. Is it a big change? I don't think so. I think the Greek left is not a left I would have an awful lot of faith in. I mean, the alternative in Greece is perhaps worse, but 
what are these people offering, right? They're offering, okay, they're offering a legitimate critique of the horrible conditions in Greece. It's terrible. I mean, it's, it, I mean a, a, a situation like that has not existed in the developed world since the 1930s. There's no doubt that that is a social catastrophe. But while I'm no expert on Greece and I cannot read Greek, I don't see them offering anything other than perhaps very effective protests against what's going on. What is their alternative for Greece? What is it? There's, there's no doubt about that, but there's also no doubt that the, there's incredible need for reform in Greece, right? That, that the austerity policies, the austerity policies are a disaster. There's no doubt about that. But there's also no doubt that the level of reform, structural reform needed in a place like Greece to ever be able to produce an economy that both can produce growth and fairness is incredibly high. Now, screaming about the austerity, totally legitimate not having good policies or even accepting the need for some major structural changes that given the condition that Greece is in will also cause immense amounts of dislocation, I don't know. Again, I'm not an expert. I don't see that coming out of those particular parties, either the Communist Party or the party who you mentioned whose name I cannot pronounce. Um, that's, what, that's what's needed. Now, unfortunately, it's going to be hard to do that in the, these particular conditions. There's no doubt about it. It would have been easier. It's always easier to reform not in the context of a crisis insofar as the amount of pain that is necessary. But again, what's needed is a combination of legitimate critiques of the failures and inequities of austerity combined with real plans for the kinds of structural reforms that would be necessary to create economies that can produce both growth and fairness. Because if you eliminated austerity today in Greece and went back to the same old policies that existed before, would things be better? Yes, people would suffer less. Are you asking for trouble again? Absolutely. Okay, now we're, uh, we, I just want to get an indication of who wants to ask a question. Can I just get a, a feeling for it? Um, so do you think you would mind just taking some notes? Sure. And I think we'll take a, a few. Um, so um, the man next to the previous speaker, then the man in the bearer in the pom-pom hat. And, um, uh, you've talked very much at a national level. I just wondered, given your um, analysis of the need to build common communities, what you think the place is for social policy that's developed more at a regional level? Okay, and the gentleman next to you. Um, I was just going to say, you know when you're talking about the stagnation of the left and the complacency and them trying to like look at capitalism and see how it can change and then the upcoming of neoliberalism, um, if we look at like how successful neoliberalism has been from that point until now, like the mass liberalisation and privatisation and everything, um, and you say the word left a lot, like, and you say it's a job of the left, as a, as a young guy growing up in Britain, I, from what I've seen of the left, like I've seen them deregulating markets and, and carry on with liberalisation. Do you think that these social democratic principles, I mean, don't you think it should be a rebuilding of the left um, fundamentally before like asking the left to do anything? Because I've seen the left carry on this policy of neoliberalisation, you know, as much as the right. Okay, and someone, uh, this gentleman over here. Um, you mentioned uh, social stability and you mentioned democracy as two of the things that we should want on the left. You seem to have abandoned class and class struggle. Is that so? Um, and there was um, one person over here. Um, 
Hi. Uh, you, uh, you speak of the need to re-establish the primacy of politics, but um, the single currency, and particularly the Eurozone crisis, has, has uh, meant that states, particularly in the periphery, have lost control of monetary policy to the ECB, and they've uh, lost control of fiscal policy to markets and, and the Troika. Um, so kind of what's, what's the logic for left-wing parties operating in this environment for offering anything uh, you know, akin to Keynesianism or, or you know, some kind of expansionary monetary policy? Uh, and the following point, um, what I got from your book, that fascism is essentially the dark twin of, um, of social democracy. Uh, it's the fascist parties and the populist parties that are actually saying to the voters that they're able to reclaim these things back, either through leaving the Eurozone um, and you know, shutting down Schengen and the rest of it. Does that not mean um, in the near future we can see or expect um, you know, uh, success of parties like the True Finns or uh, in Holland, uh, Gervildes Party? Okay, now just one last question, and don't feel you have to answer all of these in the fullness of the five minutes that are left. Um, so the uh, man in the grey sweater. Uh, hello. Um, my question is about the uh, relationship between politics and economics. It seemed to me also from your um, historical sort of review that both the right, uh, for different reasons, and the left has sort of uh, ended up being quite passive towards capitalism and, in general, the flow of the economic. And I was wondering, it seemed that the crisis really showed that politics should sort of rule a little, a little bit more the economic economic movements, and I'm wondering if you think that this is something that the left should try to promote, a political vision that controls, in a way, and reflects more on capitalism, and if you think that this is something that we should look forward to, or if it's maybe impossible and not, you know, if it's not advisable to actually control capitalism for having growth and, you know, economical success. Is it possible? have a political system that controls economic more or no? In your okay, point of view. thanks. Um, look, really don't feel you, I don't okay. think you can, so um, be yes. liberal in your choice. Okay, um, so uh, several of these questions overlap, so maybe I can, I can try to address some of them um, in conjunction. Um, so the first question had to do with social policy at the regional level. Again, sort of it's always easy in the benefit of hindsight to, to critique and it's always easy to see problems with hindsight, so I mean I, I, I throw that out there in advance. I mean, I think what we can see, again, at the regional European level, right, is that, again, this was a place where sort of the left kind of fell down on the job, right? Now, again, it's hard for me to say, it's hard for anyone to say in retrospect what could have been done, but the sort of lack of understanding or the lack of um, interest in setting things up at the European level that could ensure some level of progressive politics is, is just mind-boggling to me. I mean, the most obvious example, although by far not the only one, is the structure of the central bank, which became accepted across the Western world as by definition needing to be independent. Now, you have a question of the most powerful party in Europe, that is to say the Germans insisting that the central bank be set up this way, but there were surely other things that could have been done to kind of embed within Europe somewhat more progressive tendencies. And it seemed to me that the left was, was you know, way more absent from that debate than it could have been, and surely as we see in retrospect, it should have been. Um, the rebuilding of the left, yes. I mean, it offered just a kind of kinder, gentler version of neoliberalism for a very long time, and it's paying the price for that now because it's not seen as having anything distinctive. And if you look at the British left, there's now, now, today, in the last few years, 
a real attempt to kind of come up with an alternative version or vision. And that's a positive thing, but you know, if that had happened 20 or 30 years ago, it's interesting to think about what the situation in, in England and Britain more generally might look like today. Class struggle. I don't know what that means today, right? I don't know what it means today because classes don't have the same sort of obvious delineations and divisions as they did when the whole idea came up. I think that one of the insights of social democracy was that the vast majority of people suffer in some way from unregulated capitalism. The hard thing to do is figure out ways to appeal to those people um, to bring them together. And that's not a class struggle kind of approach. It's a kind of, again, a sort of progressive approach or a cross-class approach. And I think today that makes even more sense than it did in the late 19th century or the 30s, right? When it was much easier to say, you're a member of the middle class, you're a member of the working class. It means so little today. It's so difficult to define. And from an electoral and political perspective, I think it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, the primacy of politics, again, at the European level. This is the same question, I think, but a different version. Yes, what do we, I mean, the European Union was initially designed, or European integration, was initially designed as part of a huge package of reforms after 1945 that were to prevent Europe from falling back into the destructive tendencies that it had exhibited during the interwar years and before. What, was that, what did that mean? That mean protecting itself from war and protecting itself from failures of democracy. What is ironic is that the European Union, despite the fact that its initial architects recognized full well how critical European integration was to both preventing war and protecting democracy, that the way the Union evolved, the way the European community evolved, ended up doing precisely the opposite. This is a tragedy, and we see the tragedy playing itself out today. This, I don't know how to correct this. It's not a short-term project. But without it, then the whole arc of European integration has almost, will almost come full circle. It's a tragedy, and it's really, it's, it's a horrible tragedy. Um, it's, it's something that needs to be seriously confronted head on. Fascist and right-wing parties, yes. This is the dynamic that we see inherent in modern politics, right? Right-wing populist parties have a response to these problems. Let's pull ourselves out of the European Union. Who wants those other countries telling us what to do? And let's protect our own citizens. Now, that's not a solution probably most of us in this room would like, but it is a solution, right? It says, look, let's get out of the European Union and let's just get rid of all those other people who we don't want to spend any money on. I mean, this is always the solution that you've gotten from the radical populist right. It's not a good solution. It's probably not even an effective solution, but it's an answer, right? And until the left comes up with a better way of responding to those fears or problems or angers, then, then people are going to continue to listen to them because they're offering them something. They're offering, they're at least responding to the fears and questions that people have. Um, the primacy of politics. If the primacy of politics is no longer possible, then this is all a giant waste of time, right? If the left cannot reform capitalism in such a way as to keep it both economically able to produce growth and able to be controlled in such a way as to not threaten democracy and social stability, then we should, we should all go home. I don't believe that's true. I certainly hope it's not true, but I mean, again, that is the historical role of the left, right? That is what its greatest accomplishment was. That's what the accomplishment of the post-war period was. And if we can't find a way to recreate that in a new way, then, well, then this lecture series will not have been as successful maybe as it should have been. Well, I was going to say that we um, have had a rich and um, 
and I think deeply historically informed uh, reinterpretation of the European left and its story, and, and I think also brave and provocative in some ways program for how it should act. But, but above all else, I think we've heard a, an optimistic call for the possibility of collective action to improve our mutual situation. And so for all those things and for ending our series on such a wonderful note, I'd ask you to thank Professor Berman for coming and speaking to us today. Thank you.